floating around back here? That would help, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, isn't that fun? I have, last, I have last week's sermon up here. Again, I don't know what's happening with all that. But uh, hey, you may have noticed that we're not doing acts today. We're, not, we're, uh, we're taking a little um, yeah, vacation from, from acts for a couple weeks to kind of tie in with Advent. So you may have noticed that was an Advent passage that we just read. Did I tell you that uh, during my Thanksgiving break that my family and I, we were, we were kind of all together down in Oklahoma City and that we got trapped in a cold mine? A gold mine, not a cold mine, gold mine. Yeah? Did I, did I not mention that? Yeah, and, and we actually, according to the, the way this goes, we, we, we supposedly were lost and, and died. Uh, in, it was one of those escape room deals. I'll just let the cat out of the bag. So we paid good money to go be lost in a gold mine, the Lost Dutchman Mine. Uh, having gone through that now, I could, uh, I could spoil it for you, and I could tell you a lot of clues and a lot of hints such that if you were to now go down there and pay your 35 bucks, that you would just like waltz through it without any problem at all. How many would like me to give you a few hints? Any of you? You're not getting them. <laughs> you can die in that mine the way we did. It was, that's all. It's a hard escape, uh, very hard escape room. But um, what if that were a real mine? And, uh, and not only would you lose your life, you'd lose your eternal soul, and I refuse to give you any help. What kind of a monster would I be? Are you seeing the gospel analogy there coming? Uh, yeah, it's not even hidden, is it? You can, you can see where that's, where that's going. We're talking today uh, in this passage as Zechariah uh, proclaims this, he is looking to the birth, uh, well, his, his son John has just been born, and he's looking to his life and to his ministry and how that is going to point us uh, to Jesus. Advent is a season where we go back, as it were, and we try to kind of put ourselves somewhat in, in the place of mankind, especially the people of Israel, before the coming of Christ. We're looking today at Luke 1, 76 through 79. This is, uh, this is the word of Zechariah as he talks about John and his role looking forward to the coming of uh, Jesus. And here's the big idea today. People need to know the way of escape. That was John's role. It was to point people in that direction so that if they were lost, then they would hear and see and, and be saved. So let me hit a few high points of the life of uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth real quickly. You probably know the story, but I'll just refresh your, your memory real quickly. They were both of the tribe of Levi. Uh, they were good people, as, as one would call them, good people of God. Um, they were um, pious, and they served the Lord, and they were old, and they had not had any children and you know the story. Famously, Zechariah goes to the temple to burn incense. It's a once-in-a-kind-of-lifetime kind of role for a, for a Levite to be able to do that, for a priest. And, and so he goes in, and, he, and I, I guess he's in the process of, of lighting the incense uh, candle, the incense uh, altar. And at that moment, suddenly there's an angel standing next to him. It's the angel Gabriel. They always like to kind of creep up on you that way in, in dark, confined places. And uh, boom, there he is. And... and um, 
After he got over his shock, the, the angel announces to him that God has heard his prayers. After all of these years, he's probably stopped praying by this point um, because he, he probably doesn't believe it can really happen. But, but God is going to answer the prayers. The ba- uh, his wife, Elizabeth, will conceive and they will give birth uh, to a son. And, uh, you know, as good a guy as Zechariah was, apparently faith was not his, uh, his sort of spiritual gift. Because he had to ask the stupid question uh, of the angel, well, can you give me a sign so that I know that you're not just pulling my leg? That's, the, that's not an exact translation, but that was what it, what it boiled down to. And uh, the angel Gabriel said, are you looking for a sign? You want a sign? <laughs> Here's your sign. <laughs> you're not going to get to talk. You're not going to get to say a word. You're going to be mute. Um, from, from henceforth until whenever we get good and ready to let you talk again. And, and what happens then is nine months go by, the, you, know, you get the conception and the baby's born, and eight days in, they bring the baby to be circumcised in good Jewish tradition the eighth day, and they're going to give a name to the child. You know the story. They say, what are we going to name this kid? And Elizabeth, who's the only one talking of the two, says uh, uh, his name's John. And they said, uh, mm, I think you're kind of... I think you're kind of having a senior moment there, Elizabeth, uh, which is understandable. But there's nobody in your family named John. You can't be John. It's got to be something, uh, something you know, like Zechariah, for instance. That would be a good name. So they turn to Zechariah, and they're like, what do you say, Zechariah? And, he's, and, and so they hand him, hand him something to write with, and he writes down, his name is John. How many know this story? And this was repetition. Yep, okay. His name is John. All of a sudden, his, his tongue is loose, his mouth is open, and he bursts forth in prophetic utterance, in prophetic speech. And, and that's, that's in Luke 1, 69 through 79. You'll notice we didn't handle all of that. But in the first portion of it, Zechariah extols God, and especially with regard to how God has freed the people of Israel from their enemies. If you look at verse 75, it kind of encapsulates the first half more than half, but the first half in terms of theme of what he's saying. It says that we being delivered from the hand of our enemy might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So that's sort of the first section of that. But then you get to the portion that, that we are looking at today where we're talking about pointing toward the escape. And there are three signposts on the way out. You know, you go to an escape room and you get clues along the way and Sometimes they'll just suddenly appear after you've solved a riddle, and those are your signposts. We're going to look at three of these today. First of all, we need pointed to salvation. John's role will be that of a signpost, easy for me to say, pointing, pointing to salvation. It says, and you, child, and that's talking about John, Zechariah speaking, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. There's a lot we could unpack there, but I just kind of jump right to the end there of that little section and note that it says that salvation consists in the forgiveness of sins. And that may seem obvious to you, but it's also really quite significant that we understand what salvation is actually for, what it's actually about. It is it is dealing with the big problem that people may not know they have, and that is sin against a holy God. 
I know that a lot of people have the notion in their mind that for the people of Israel, salvation was a whole lot about the first section there of, of what it was that Zechariah looked to, which is salvation from their enemies. And that was certainly something that they thought of when they thought of the coming Messiah and salvation. They thought of deliverance from their enemies. But the idea that that's all they thought about, that I, I, I don't believe that has ever been the case. If you read the prophets, you cannot miss the fact that, that it was the sin and rebellion of God's people that kept getting them delivered over to their enemies. And every time they were delivered through the hand of God and they would try to walk with the Lord, for it, it seemed like it didn't last any time at all. How many have read through the book of Judges recently? And you just kept like, what is wrong with these people? God, they get into trouble. They cry out to God. God delivers them. As soon as they're delivered, psh, bam, right back into sin. And you have them carried off by the Assyrians. You have them carried off by the Babylonians and so forth. Uh, the, the prophets very much understand that this all is rooted in the issue of their sinful hearts. Take Malachi, for instance, which Zechariah is quoting Malachi. and We'll talk about that. I'll bring that together for you in a little bit here. But Malachi was written about 100 years after the Babylonian captivity had ended. And so God's people are back in the Holy Land. They're still under sort of ruling powers. You know, the world powers moved from Babylon to Persia to, to, to the Greeks. But they had their land. They had their temple. And yet Malachi brings charges against God's people that, that they are not walking with him with a, with a whole heart. They know, you know it, you, you, that, that they need a, a whole renovation of their heart. The book of Malachi, you may know, is the last book of the Old Testament. And it ends... Looking forward, it, it's not a, it, it doesn't end with this feeling of self-satisfaction that, hey, we're here and everything's great. It, it looks at the heart of the people and how their hearts need to be changed. And it looks toward the coming of Messiah. And it looks toward one who will come in the spirit of Elijah and, and will turn them toward the Lord in, in their whole heart. You know, men and women today might uh, want salvation, might want rescue, they might want a lot of things, but, but do they understand what the people of God had to understand? That it is in the forgiveness of sins that salvation really occurs. People want saved from a lot of things. If you, if you ask people what they want saved from, oh, they want delivered from fear, the kinds of fears we live in, fear of COVID, fear of the communist Chinese or... Russian aggression in Ukraine or whatever it might be. Or they want, they, they want to be delivered from the fears they have about their bank accounts. They want more money in their bank account. They want health and wealth. And they want to be prettier and more popular. And all those things they might want if, if you're saying, hey, God could just, we'll just throw this smorgasbord. God will just save you by giving you everything you want, you know, in this world. Um, a lot of people would be signing up for that. But the way of escape, for, uh, the way of escape in salvation is being delivered from our sins. It is to be forgiven of the sins that we've committed against a holy God. We need to see that. People need to understand that our sins are grievous because they represent faithless rebellion against a holy God who created us, who created the entire universe in which we live, in which we move. Um, that is, it is all from him and against him and him only. We have sinned and we fall short of his glory. Until we see that is our genuine problem, we cannot begin to understand 
why Christ came into the world. We cannot begin to find that way of escape. Second signpost for our escape points us to mercy. Mercy. Zechariah puts these two things together. He connects that, that way of salvation in the forgiveness of sins. The reason for that is the mercy of God. He says, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. First, I want you to, as we parse this out, I want you to think about just the English word mercy and what is implied with the word mercy. Mercy is akin to a word that has fallen into um, disrepute. Um, as soon as I say it, you'll, you'll, I think, agree, and that's the word pity. Do you think of pity as a positive word as we use it in modern American English? Pity is, we scorn the word pity, don't we? Pity, don't, don't pity me, I don't want your pity. Ah, oh, you're just engaged in self-pity. It just sounds negative, doesn't it? But pity really does kind of summarize mercy because what mercy is, is it's when we see someone who is in dire straits, whether they've put themselves in those positions or not, it is someone who is in a bad, bad way. And we look upon them, and, and we have no obligation, other than just our own humanity, you might say, we have no obligation to help them. Well, maybe they put themselves, maybe, maybe they, you know, racked up a big, uh, a big debt at the casino in, in Vegas. And, and, of course, if you go in to the owner of the casino, you just say, I just want mercy, and they'll give it to you, right? Isn't that, those of you that go to Vegas, now they give you a pair of uh, new shoes made of cement. And that's the mercy you, you get at that point. Uh, criminals want mercy. But another type of mercy is just people that are really, really, for, for no you know, for none action on their own part, they, they are just in a miserable, miserable place. Think of beggars. Think of Bartimaeus as, uh, uh, as he cried out to Jesus. Do you remember what he cried for? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So we get the idea of what mercy is. Mercy is pity towards someone who cannot help themselves. Now, this is combined here with another word, which is, which is a really fascinating word that we've talked about before. Um, it is a Klingon word. It sounds like a Klingon word. It's, it's actually Greek, but it sounds like Klingon. It's the word splachnon. Splachnon. It means this right here. Your gut, your, your, your bowels. That is the word splachnon in its most literal sense. Now, the way the, the Bible, the way the Greeks used it was not so much. It's the way we use the word heart when we're not talking about our literal heart, when we're talking about that, that compassion uh, thread that we have within us. So Zechariah here is putting together the idea of mercy, which already is a beautiful, wonderful word, together with this idea of compassion, this, this deep, tender, this resonant, I see you in pain, and not only do I see and recognize you're in pain, and not only do I have some pity for you, my heart is moved to help you in your condition. How many today know that you need the mercy of God? Yeah, that's good. That's good. We need, we need that. If, if we want to escape sin, death, and judgment, we need to actually understand that we, we are not able to help ourselves. We are as Bartimaeus. We are as the sinner who went to the temple and wouldn't look up to God, but just, but just beat his breast and said, have mercy on me, a sinner. We, if, if we are not coming to God in that way, then, then we will not find the way of escape. Then there's this beautiful expression of how God's mercy is given. And I love this. It's just one of the most poetic. Um, I, I, I've tried to think about whether there's anything quite as poetic sounding 
Now, maybe words that move you more in the New Testament, but these are just genuinely so poetic. They're the words of Zechariah, but he's, he's more or less loosely quoting from Malachi. We'll get to that. Um, he says, Because of the tender mercies of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. And the word there that is an unusual word for sunrise that the King James translated dayspring. Have you ever asked yourself what day, the dayspring is? Let me, let me read that. Through the tender mercies of our God, whereby the dayspring from on high hath visited us. So think of the prophets longing for the coming of Messiah. By the Holy Spirit, he burst forth. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go forth leaping like calves from the stall. Do you see how Zechariah was kind of quoting loosely from that? But he makes one little adjustment from, from Malachi. Under the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there's one thing that's a little bit different when he quotes that. I mean, not only does he leave part of it out, but um, think about the, the day spring again, the, the sunrise. Before the sun rises, where is the sun? I'm not asking a scientific question because I know the sun is hurtling through space, as are we, and that relative to the sun, the sun hasn't moved. I get that, okay? But where, you know, from the, from the phenomenological standpoint of what, what we see, where is the sun before sunrise? Below the horizon, right? Do you, do you, have you caught on to what's a little odd about what Zechariah says? He says... Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Visit us from on high. So the sunrise here is the coming from on high of the sun, S-O-N, the son of God in glory, being born as the Messiah, as the Savior for his people. God is about to visit his people with redemption, with salvation in the forgiveness of sins through the sun, coming from on high like, like the sunrise rising in the sky. Isn't that beautiful? Suddenly some of the old Christmas carols might start to make sense. How many have sung carols all your life and not understood half of what you were saying? You ever feel that way? You're out there, I don't know, I'm wassailing, I have no idea what I'm... Yeah. Hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Hail the sun, S-U-N, sun of righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Doesn't that take on a new meaning when you hear about that? Or what about the words of O Come, o come Emmanuel? It says, O come thou day spring." Come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow put to flight. How do we escape the gloomy clouds of night, of death's shadow? The answer is we need mercy. We need mercy. We need a savior from our sin. And John was sent to announce to the people of God that God in mercy is sending the day spring, the sun, the S-U-N and the S-O-N rising over them with redemption. Some, some men don't want mercy because they're too proud to admit that they need God's pity. Unfortunately, we've really given pity a, a bad word, but I'll tell you what, pity's good when you need pity. And, and some people are too proud for that. And some people don't want it because they really don't want delivered from the darkness. They prefer the darkness. John says that in his gospel, that, that men preferred the darkness because their deeds were evil. 
But if you're blind, if you feel the darkness, how many have ever been afraid in the dark? Anyone? Is it just me? I had a morbid fear of the dark as a child. When you have a fear of the dark and you're in the dark and, and you need mercy, the day spring is a beautiful promise, isn't it? Paul wrote these words to describe the gospel and, and, and the light of the gospel in Christ and how some men do not see it. It says, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I pray today that your eyes have been opened and that that day spring has risen with healing in its wings and that you've seen and recognized in that the glory of Jesus Christ because that's the only way out. It's the only way we can offer you. I can give you a lot of hints, but at bottom line, that's, that's the biggest hint of all. It's Jesus. That's the one we're pointing to. And this is all crystallized in the final signpost, and that's light and peace. Verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And this is, this is very rich, deep stuff. And, you know, we can spend a lot of time with each word. But, I just, but just think about light for a moment, light and, and what it conveys in the scripture. The only problem with light is it, just, it can mean a lot of different things. It's a metaphor for a lot of different things. But primarily, I believe that if you look for the main focus of what light is about in the Bible, it's really first and foremost about the presence of God. Everywhere that God reveals himself, what we call epiphanies, at every sort of epiphany in the scripture, the presence of God is always attended with great light. The Bible says that God dwells in unapproachable light. At the transfiguration when the three inner disciples, Peter, James, and John, are with Jesus on that Mount of Transfiguration, and he's transformed before them, and they see him really in his actual glory, in his genuine glory, and, and his appearance is brighter at that moment than the noonday sun. That is, so, so when we're talking about the light, we're talking about God's presence. And sort of secondarily, too, and included in that, is that when God blesses us with, with a vision of who he is. He's revealing himself. He's revealing his character to us. He's showing himself to his people in love in that covenantal way. Look at what Isaiah says. And this is kind of a parallel to the Malachi passage. You'll see bits and pieces that are kind of very similar to it. He says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. We might think about that as the day spring. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. What's Isaiah talking about there? He's looking into the future. He's looking toward Advent, if you will, of the coming of the Lord. And he's saying that God will rise and he will reveal himself and his glory will be seen. And not only that, he's saying that the, the nations, that's you and I who are of the Gentiles. That's the word, in fact, for Gentile was nations. The nations are in darkness, thick darkness. 
But God's going to do a thing. He's going to do a work among the people of Israel where that day spring rises and the glory of the Lord shines upon them and they will start to reflect that glory. And then those nations which are in darkness will actually see that light. So the covenant that God has with his people will, will just be increased and, and his, his revelation of himself seen, but it will also have the advantage of showing that light to us, the Gentiles, as well. So light is the holy, redeeming, glorious presence of God with his people in salvation. And then Zechariah says this about that light. That light is there to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's the way of escape. It is this light that lights the path into the way of peace. Now, what's peace? You say, well, that's pretty simple. Peace is the absence of war. Well, that's true. That would be one definition. And it's not an altogether bad biblical definition because biblically speaking, the the chief aspect of peace that that we look to is that we were once enemies of God and now through Christ we've been brought into that covenantal relationship where we're no longer enemies but we are part of the family of God. We, we are reconciled to God. There is peace with him. But there's something else to peace as well when you're talking about it biblically. Certainly Isaiah and Malachi and Zechariah would have been using the Hebrew word Shalom. And you've all heard that word, shalom. And shalom means peace, but it also contains within it all, this, all these other aspects. Because shalom, peace, is the idea of, of wholeness and, and well-being. It's sort of, as, as I read it, it's the communication of all the goodness of God to a person. It's, it's analogous to when Jesus speaks about abundant life. How many want abundant life? Jesus said, I come that they might have life, have it abundantly. That word is also like pity, been done damage by health and wealth preachers who promise people abundant life. And what they're saying is you can drive a great car and you can have a great 401k. And that's sort of what they point to when they think of abundant. Abundant life is that covenantal relationship with God himself through, through Christ wherein there's every spiritual blessing in him. It's knowing him. John uh, seventeen three, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so shalom, shalom that we are led into through the light of Christ is this abundant life in union with God himself, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It, it, it is that knowing of God where he's revealed himself in love and redemption. Now, if you've come to Grace for very long, uh, you have heard the following story, but I'm going to tell it again anyway. It's about the time I got lost in the cave. How many are like, oh, not this again? It was a very, uh, it was a very meaningful experience to me in my young life, so I'm going to tell it, because I think it fits here. Uh, my wife and I uh, were at, uh, yeah, I wasn't that young, right? I was married, but uh, we, were, we were young. We had young kids at the time, and uh, apparently I was going to leave them fatherless, because we, we were at a state park, just she and I, and, uh, and we were, we were you know, kind of putzing around, and we came along this trail, and there was a big, big cave opening, and um, it had a plaque, which someone had defaced, so you couldn't read anything on the plaque. Um, you, I think it said Wolf Cave, and then it went, <laughs> so we, oh, there's something back there. Should we go? Probably not. It's, you know, and this is before cell phones, so no ready, you know, we didn't come with flashlights, and there was no phone with a flashlight on it, boys and girls, if you can even imagine that. Um, LAUGHTER 
showed. I didn't even, and I didn't smoke, so I didn't have a light. I didn't have anything to, to create, you know, light. So we walk around a little bit, get about 100 yards away, maybe along the trail, and we see another cave opening. And I said, ah, ha, 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 I was using my brain, um, but not all of it. Because uh, I said to my wife, Debbie, I will go back to the cave entrance, and uh, you stay here, and I will call to you. And if you hear me through the cave um, calling to you, call back to me, and that'll tell me that it connects, and I, I will come to you, and I will, I will go through the cave. And that'll be, woohoo because I'm an adventurer. And... Um, so I went back, and sure enough, I got inside the cave, and I called to Debbie, and I, I could hear a faint, oh, yeah, Jack. <clears throat> oh, she's probably saying, you idiot. But, uh, <laughs> so I started toward, toward her, and, uh, and it all was going just wonderfully. I mean, immediately it seemed like I was plunged into darkness right away. I, it got darker to the point. It was that where I literally could not see the hand in front of my face, and I kept walking toward her voice. And then somewhere about halfway, it just hit me, wait a second, um, I have no clue if I can turn around and go back the way I just came. I don't know what a full 180 would even feel like, and I don't know how many different directions this cave might go off into because they defaced the, the plaque. I have no clue. I'm in darkness, and I'm in, in my normal ignorance as well. And so I thought, okay, don't panic, don't panic. I can hear her voice. I'm just going to keep going. It's, it's got to connect. It's got to connect. And I just kept going. And then all at once, lo and behold, in the darkness, the ceiling of the cave started getting lower and lower and lower. And eventually I had to get on my knees and I'm crawling. Because there's, there's this voice in my head going, panic, panic. Now's the time to panic. And another voice is going, don't, don't panic. You'll be lost if you panic. And I'm moving. And now water is in the cave. There was water up over my legs. And, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. And just about the moment where I just completely lost it, I could see gray instead of black. That's literally like how it first went. It was like, oh, that's, that's no longer pitch black. That's less than pitch black. And then a little bit further, and then a little bit of a crack of light. And me, I, I ran to that or scrambled to that as quickly as I could. I came out, it looked like the earth had given birth to me. <laughs> it did. I was covered in mud and water. My wife was about ready to kill me. Oh, I'm so happy to see you, honey. Now I... <laughs> yeah. Why am I telling you all that? There's got to be a reason, right? Um, I say that because we may not remember what it feels like to be lost. Have you, if you've been a Christian for a while, do you remember what it was like to be lost in darkness and need, in need of mercy, in need of pity, because God apparently at least allowed you to know your condition, but you didn't yet know the way out? That's a horrible, horrible place to be. But we are here at this Advent time of the year like John the Baptist. I'm not saying we are John the Baptist. We're like him. Because what is our role at Advent except to point people toward the way of escape? We need to tell them, look, the problem is your sin. And I know you don't want me talking to you about your sin, but that's it. That's the, the rub and the nub of the whole thing. It is your sin to, against a holy God. You are lost. And yet this, this God, this God of mercy, of, of, of just splagnon mercy, just from, the, he, he has poured that out. He has caused the day spring, the sun of his love to rise in the sky, to dawn, for that light to dawn upon you that you might find that way 
to peace. That's our role. That is our role. To, 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 the, and what a great time Christmas is. It's out there. We were just talking this morning about how at the, at the Crest Theater there's a, there's a um, Christmas play that there's just 101 ways where people are maybe listening that they're not normally listening and we can be pointing them to that way of escape. And if you're in darkness today and you're hearing this, I just would say to you, look, it, it brings me no joy to say you're lost but if you don't know you're lost and, and you're, you are lost, then you, then you need to hear that. That is, just, that, is, that is obviously for your good. What kind of person would I be if, if you're lost and in danger of losing your immortal soul if I don't point you to the way out? And so that's what we're doing today. We're just pointing you to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is, he is that day spring that has, that has arisen with light and, and life and, and, and healing in, in his wings. I mean, all, all of that, we just point into Jesus Christ. If you will cry out for mercy, which means, I mean, if you see that need and you cry out, all those, the Bible says, who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. When you call upon him for that mercy, he will give it to you. And then that light, that light and that shalom that we were talking about will be yours. And we will rejoice with you in that. Let's pray. Father, we do forget so readily what it's like to be genuinely, truly lost in darkness. And on the one hand, Lord, I thank you that, that that's not a constant memory. Because that would be PTSD right there, is to think about how dark it really was to be away from you, to be apart from you. Lord, and you've, you've seen fit to... to Reveal the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and, and open our eyes to see that. But Lord, we know that there are some and uh, some we love very deeply and friends and neighbors and co-workers that, that are still in darkness. So help us, Lord, not, not in pride or arrogance, Lord, but just as those who have, have come through and, uh, and, and seen the break of day, Lord, that, that we might point them toward that. And uh, give us the courage for that, Lord. Give us the words for it. Use this time of Advent and Christmas to, to really um, open up opportunities for us in that. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.